Thanks, Bunny Kay, and thanks, band. Uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer, one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you chose uh, to join us this morning. Uh, like you heard, we are in a sermon series in the book of Acts. So this book of, is in the New Testament, comes after the books that talk about Jesus' life and death, uh, his ministry, his miracles. So at the beginning of Acts, Jesus has risen from the grave. He's now ascended to be uh, with the Father. He's reigning in heaven with the Father. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into believers, and the church is born. So hence the subtitle of our sermon series, The Church is Born. And so far, we have seen uh, this guy named Paul. We just heard about his story. He actually recounts his conversion. Uh, and so here we see this guy named Acts, or, uh, named Paul in Acts. He has been for the past, I don't know, 10 plus chapters going throughout the ancient world starting new churches. So he, he shares how God... Uh, saved him, how God converted him, and then that last verse says that he was sent to the Gentiles. And so uh, we've seen him go on three church planning journeys all across Europe uh, and Asia. And so now where our story picks up is that uh, if you weren't here last week, Paul's done with these three journeys. He comes back to the church in Jerusalem, which is where the, the church started, where it was born. And when he comes back, Jewish people, not uh, Christian uh, Jews, so not people who are ethnically Jew. Jews that have converted to Christianity, but uh, Jewish people fight against him. They, they uh, bring up some false accusations. There's a mob that forms that wants to uh, kill him, and uh, they're just about to kill him, and then the Roman Tribune hears about this happening and sends in uh, hundreds of uh, Roman soldiers to come rescue Paul from this mob that is trying to kill him. And it, it is that, that's the setting uh, when our chapter, or when our passage this week picks up. So as the centurion and all those uh, Roman soldiers are rescuing Paul, he kind of stops them and says, hey, can I address the mob? Will you, will you let me uh, talk to this group of people, uh, my, my people, my ethnic people? And uh, it would be nice if you kind of stood in between the mob and them, but I would like to address them. And he does. The, the tribune lets Paul do that, and then Paul shares his story. Uh, he shares his testimony about how God has saved him, how he converted, and uh, that's what we're going to look at today. So uh, our title for today's sermon is A Witness of What You've Seen and Heard. So out of Paul's salvation, out of his uh, conversion, he is given a new identity. And part of that new identity is that Paul is now going to be a witness to what he has seen and heard. And that actually is the same identity that all of us as Christians have been given as well. That's part of our identity. So as we look at our passage, we're going to see this. But first, let's start with Paul, Paul's conversion. So when he addresses this Jewish mob that's trying to murder him, he starts off by telling them his story, his story of conversion, how he uh, became saved by the resurrected Jesus Christ. So he starts off by saying, uh, reminding them that he was incredibly zealous. He was incredibly passionate for the Old Testament law, for the Jewish faith. So much so that he persecuted Christianity, which, which was called the way here in our passage uh, here today. He was so passionate about being a good Jewish leader, a good religious leader in his uh, religion, that he actually was fighting against the church violently. He was one of the leaders that was persecuting the church but actually what was going on, even though he thought he was serving God by doing this, he was actually fighting against God. And we'll talk more about that in, in just a minute. 
So while Paul was literally terrorizing the church, you're trying to get the church to quit by uh, murdering people within the church, by, by chaining them up, by throwing them in prison, by splitting apart families, by going from village to village, city to city, to round up Christians. While Paul was literally terrorizing the church and murdering Jesus' disciples, God interrupts him. That's part of his story. So he's on the way to Damascus to do the same thing, to persecute more Christians. It is on uh, his, his trip to Damascus that God shows up. And he literally uh, knocks him off his horse in this blinding light, and Jesus speaks to him. And it is in this moment that Paul moves from being an enemy of Christ to becoming a friend. Jesus literally knocks him off his horse onto his butt, blinds him, and changes Paul's identity. He moves from being a persecutor of the church to now being a promoter, and even a leader in the church, someone who starts more churches all across Asia and Europe. And so then after this event happens, he's brought uh, to Damascus, the place he was trying to go, and there's a disciple there named Ananias who prays for Paul. He heals him. Paul regains his sight. Ananias baptizes him as Paul confirms uh, publicly that he is now a follower of Christ, showing off his new identity as a remade man. And out of this, Paul is given a new identity. He's given a new mission. Paul's new identity, we, we read that in verse 15, for you will be a witness for Jesus to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So let us kind of like just stop there, and even if you know the story, maybe it's not as scandalous, but let's just stop there and, and feel the weight of what God just did here. There was literally, at this time, no greater enemy to the church there's no greater enemy to Christians at this time than this guy, than Paul. Yet even the hardest of hearts, the people with the most evil, the most sin in their pasts, even the greatest enemies against God and his church are not without hope. If there's hope for Paul, there's hope for anyone. There's hope for me, there's hope for you. No one, no one, not even a terrorist who murders Christ's followers is beyond redemption and the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, thinking that you're too, too dirty, too sinful, too far from him, maybe thinking that your past, what's been done to you, or your doubts can keep you from Jesus, that it's just too much for him to overcome, let us be very clear. They are not. Jesus is in the business of saving sinners. Saving terrorists, saving evil people, saving murderers, as well as saving the prideful, the self-righteous, and those who are so independent that they don't think they have a need for God. And while most of us in this room haven't murdered Christians in our past, hopefully, we too, apart from Christ, are enemies of God. And it might not feel like that. We maybe didn't uh, think that before we became Christians we were enemies of God. But that's how uh, Jesus describes it. That's how the New Testament describes it. Paul's salvation, while miraculous and extreme, is actually a powerful picture of our exact salvation. When we see Paul's salvation, when we see his conversion, or any conversion for that matter, we should see uh, a symbolic picture of what happened to us in our own hearts 
in our own lives. Apart from Christ, we too, in our sinful nature, were enemies against God. And although maybe we didn't feel like it, maybe we just, in our hearts, felt like we were neutral against God, or we kind of liked him, but we kind of didn't care, or we didn't really know if he was the one true God or others. Maybe we didn't feel like we're enemies of God, but becoming, uh, but before com- but before becoming Christians, maybe we felt like we were just kind of neutral, that we were kind of just weighing the options, and we didn't think the God of the Bible was a bad option, just maybe wasn't the most persuasive or the one we had heard about. But rather, the truth is, we weren't neutral. Alongside all of humanity, all of us in here included, we were hostile towards God in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our motives, in our desires. We were rebellious against him. We fought against him and his rule. We wanted to be independent. We didn't want to worship him as God. We didn't think that he was good. And whether we realize it or not, all of our sin and evil deeds are ultimately not against just other humans, but ultimately against him. Colossians 1.21, Paul writing to one of these churches, he started, he describes uh, Christians' lives before they were converted, right? He says in uh, verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So if you're a Christian here, this was your past. This was your identity. Whether we realize it or not, we were in our sin. We were hostile towards God. We were alienated from him. We were actually far from him doing evil deeds, just like Paul in our story. He even thought that he was doing good in this world. He even thought that he was doing good for the one true God. But he was actually alienated from God. He wasn't God's friend. He didn't know God. He wasn't close to him. He was actually hostile in mind towards God as he was persecuting the church and Jesus himself doing evil deeds. And in Romans 5, another one of Paul's letters, he, he, he literally describes us as enemies of God before our salvation. Apart from faith in Christ, our default mode is enemies of God. Yet, just like in Paul's story, God shows up. And in Paul's story, while he's still breathing murderous threats against the church, as he's on the way to persecute and hurt and, and throw people in prison and destroy Christianity, it is then that God steps in. And it's the same for our own stories as well. God doesn't wait for Paul to clean up. He doesn't wait for Paul to realize that Jesus really is God or that Christianity really is true or that Jesus really is the Messiah that the Jewish faith has been waiting for for centuries and centuries. But God just shows up. Like with Paul, God interrupts our hellbound sprint away from him. He interrupts our lives with mercy and his compassion. Romans 5 describes this great reality of ours. Paul's reality, Paul's salvation and conversion, as well as ours if you are a Christian here today. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ saves Paul while Paul is a sinner, while Paul is a murderer, while Paul is a persecutor of the church. If you're a Christian here today, that is your story. You didn't have to clean up first. You didn't have to become strong. You were actually weak. 
We were actually ungodly. We were far from him. And it is when and while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Not when we were lovable, not when we were good, not when we were doing things for him, but while we were sinners, that is when Christ died for us. So that we cannot boast about it. It is a gift. It is given to us. We have not earned it. The third thing we see in Paul's life is that he was blinded. And now the Spirit helps him and helps us truly see. Like Paul, in our sin we were blind. And we needed God to step in to remove that blindness so that we could finally see. Finally see the truth and finally see him and his gospel. Paul, writing to another one of his churches in Corinth, he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that's our natural state. We're born into being blind. We're born into having this veil in front of us so that we can't truly and fully see the gospel. It is like there's a veil covering our eyes, a veil that's, that's thick enough that keeps the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, out of our eyes. A, bl- a, a blindness and a veil that's put there both by the enemy, by Satan, as well as by our own sinful natures. But like Paul, if we're Christians, our story doesn't end with blindness or a veil. But if we're Christians, our story uh, continues with through faith in Jesus now, our eyes are opened. The veil is removed. Our sight is returned. Paul, writing to another one of his church in Ephesians, uses the same language. He writes, uh, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may he give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Have you guys seen those YouTube videos? I've seen a few of them where a person who has... uh, not been able to see uh, color, has been colorblind for their whole life, through some like technology or so, like some new glasses, uh, is able to see color for the very first time. Have you seen some of those videos before? Our salvation is kind of like that. Like we go through our life thinking that we see reality clearly, just like the person with colorblindness only knows a world of, of blacks and whites and grays, yet when the gospel comes, it's like putting on those glasses. And the first, for the first time in our lives, we can see reality clearly. We're seeing through these glasses, and all of a sudden, the world pops, and it's brilliant, and there's, there's light and, and, and darkness and color and contrast and beauty that we had never seen before. That's kind of what's going on here with Paul and in our salvation. Before, we could just kind of see. We thought that we could see things clearly. That's all we ever know. But now through the gospel, when we're saved, our eyes are truly open. We see things clearly. Before our salvation, we kind of knew about God, but at best, we were just indifferent towards him. But now, once we've been saved, once we're put on these new glasses that allow us to see color, back to our passage that we just read in Ephesians, we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And now we can see all this stuff. Now we may see and know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might? Now out of this salvation, Paul is changed. Paul is transformed. And he's also given a new identity. 
He's called to be a witness to what he has seen and heard and now experienced. And like that, we too have been called to be witnesses to what we've experienced, what's been our story, the reality, the truth that we can now see. And with Paul, he does this publicly. He gets baptized right away to publicly declare that he is uh, now declaring allegiance to the one true God, Jesus Christ, sharing his story publicly, fresh to the, the people who are watching. And like Paul, every Christian is given a new identity when they are saved. And part of that identity is to help people truly see, to help people see the reality of the gospel. Part of our new identity is to be a witness to others that are still blinded and, and to give a testimony to what we have seen and heard and experienced. If you remember back at the very beginning of the Acts, in the first chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, there's kind of like a summary statement that describes what the rest of the whole book, the rest of uh, the next 28 chapters are going to be about. So Jesus tells his disciples, right as he's about to go back to heaven to, to rule and reign uh, with the Father and send the Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus says to his disciples, to his church. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So God says, my, Jesus says, my disciples, my people, my church, by definition, they will be witnesses. But notice what kind of witnesses that we are. We're not just people who are bystanders that just kind of saw something happening, like a witness who saw a car accident that's now speaking to a judge or to a police officer or insurance agent or something like that. Even though it is true that our salvation, we are just a witness. We are just a bystander. We are not doing anything. We're just standing on the sidelines and our, our salvation just happens to us. God shows up and opens up our eyes. So in some ways, we are just a witness that is just a bystander. Yet, at the same time, out of that, our new identity is a witness who tells people what they have seen. We are witnesses who, like a herald, in, in ancient times, goes to a village or to a city that hasn't heard the news. A herald who goes to them and says, the war is won. You haven't heard this great news, but let me tell you, the war is won. Or we've found a cure for the disease. Or a new king has been born. Or telling them that there's a way of seeing the world that we never thought existed. There's this thing called color, and it's blowing our minds, and we want to tell you about the real way to see reality, a better way to see life and to be transformed. We are all called, if you're a Christian here today, to be a witness, to actively witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our new identity. We are sent ones. We're witnesses. We're givers of our testimony before the world. We're filled with the Holy Spirit and collectively with all Christians, Christians here in this room, Christians across this globe and Christians throughout history were collectively called, just like Paul, to go to the ends of the world to be witnesses, to spread this good news, to declare the gospel. There's one more really important thing, something vital that we need to see here as Paul describes his conversion. And that is, by the church being persecuted, Jesus says that he is being persecuted. When Jesus is persecuted, the church is, at the very same time, being persecuted. We saw that in verse 7 and 8. And I fell to the ground 
uh, and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's other name, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuted. So Jesus taught throughout his ministry, and we see it all throughout the New Testament, that the church, this gathered group of disciples of Jesus Christ, is his body here on earth. Christians in a local church are a mystical yet literal body of Jesus. His hands, his feet, his mouthpieces. Jesus, through his spirit, lives in all believers. If you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit lives within you. So in a very real yet mystical and spiritual way, the church is Jesus' body. The church is Jesus' physical presence on earth right now. So when someone is persecuting the church, they're persecuting Jesus' body. They're persecuting Jesus. The resurrected, reigning king of the universe looks down at the murderous, violent terrorist of the church, and he tells him that by persecuting the church, he's actually persecuting God himself, the God that Paul claims to worship and follow. We've talked about this a a few times in the past uh, throughout Acts because it keeps coming up again and again. Jesus identifies himself with the church, with Christians. Yet this truth about our identity, it's just really hard for us to grasp. It's it's strange. Uh, We forget about it. If you're not a Christian here today, it's probably very foreign to you as it was to, to many of us before we learned this. This truth that in a very real yet spiritual way, the church is Christ's body. We just forget it so often, or we forget the implications, or we maybe believe it, but we don't uh, connect the dots on how it should play out in our lives. So like Paul, when we're hurting the church, when we hurt other Christians, when we slander against them, when we talk bad about them, when we have impure, uh, selfish, or mean motives or thoughts against them, whether it's Christians in this room, whether it's High Wealth of Church, whether it's Christians in our family, uh, Christian friends, other churches throughout the world, when we hurt the church and when we slander against it, we're doing so against Christ himself. And the flip side of this is true. The positive side of this is true as well. When Christians, if, if Christians are the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ, when Christians serve you, when they show you hospitality, when a Christian is generous with you or kind towards you in a very real and spiritual way, Jesus is doing that towards you through his body. We often don't remember this or we don't make the connection. We might be served by our community group leaders. We might be uh, taught and encouraged by our leaders. We might be forgiven by other believers. We might be shown great hospitality and generosity and kindness by other Christians and in the same day think, God seems so far from me. It feels like Jesus has abandoned me. Does he even exist? Does he even love me? We do this all the time, right? And we need to make the connection that these acts of love and kindness, generosity, mercy, forgiveness, that we receive from other Christians and from our church are literally acts of love and care from Jesus himself. That we get to experience, we get to tangibly feel. We don't only get to feel God's presence through singing worship songs or through seeing uh, sunsets or through uh, prayer all by ourselves. We also see and experience and feel God's tangible love and care and forgiveness and mercy and hospitality and leadership through the church, through other Christians. 
And we can't be daily blessed by the love from other Christians and our church and then think and feel like Jesus is distant. I mean, we can and we do, but then we're, miss, we're missing that connection there. It's, it's this disconnect that, that I'm warning us about, myself about, and Paul is uh, sharing about as well. Jesus is giving Paul this connection. Jesus is one with his church. Jesus is one with his body. We talked about this a few weeks ago as well, that in one of Jesus' longest uh, teachings in the New Testament, he says, when you welcome, when you serve, when you meet tangible needs, when you love and care for other Christians, you're doing this to me, right? In Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 25. Jesus taught, whatever we do for the least of his brothers and sisters, we're doing to him. And this makes sense, right? That's how Jesus taught. That's how he spoke. That's how the rest of the New Testament reads. There's no verse in the New Testament that speaks about Jesus saying that a part of Jesus is in every single human being in this world. And that when we're just kind of kind to any human, we're literally doing it to Jesus. Well, we're still called to, to love and to serve people that aren't Christians, for sure. We're not saying that. But, but rather, what does the New Testament teach about doing good deeds towards Jesus himself? What does the New Testament say? It says over and over again, that Jesus fills all Christians with his spirit. That if you're a Christian, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. He calls the gathered body of believers his body, his literal body. And he has teachings like in Matthew 25 that say, whatever you do to the least, the hurting, the broken, the needy, brothers and sisters of mine, you do to me. Because they are my body, my physical body here on earth. So when we do good deeds towards other Christians, when we love them, when we uh, care for them and lead them and protect them and forgive them in a very real yet mystical way, we're doing this to Jesus. And as a church, just to take this one more level, as a church, we have uh, many people who are around us, who come to our events, who come to our Sunday mornings, who are in our community groups, who uh, are friends with us, that are attracted to in some way, or, or, or even love Hiawatha Church people. Even though they think what's, what's going on in this stage, or the, the book that we hold dear, or our statement of faith, they might think it's, it's BS, or it's fairy tales, or it's foolish, or it's even harmful. It, we still have many people who are attracted to Hiawatha Church, or, to be, or attracted to Christian community. They're looking at uh, brothers and sisters in faith loving each other and caring for each other and how they're treated by them and saying, I don't know what that is and what they say they believe, I'm definitely against, but I'm drawn to that for some weird, strange reason. That's just a reality. That's happened throughout our 13 years. It's happening right now, uh, this week, this month. And by God's grace, we pray it will continue to happen. But what they aren't getting, what, what, what they aren't fully seeing is that what they're drawn to is not Hiawathans being uh, brilliant, amazing people, right? Myself included. But what they're drawn towards us when they see Christian community is Christ, right? They, they don't realize it. We don't realize it. We forget it, and this is like our reality. But what they are attracted to is the Holy Spirit within us. Because in general, by God's grace, we're not great, but by God's grace, Christians at Hiawatha are kind, are welcoming, are friendly, are generous, are authentic, or in a word, we're Christ-like. So we should be surprised when people who don't believe what we believe are still kind of attracted to us because we kind of look like 
Jesus. So I'm often trying to help these people, and Christians as well, see that what you're really attracted to here at Hiawatha Church, if you're attracted to, to people and community and the way that we interact with each other, or the way we interact with, with others outside of the church, I'm trying to help them and others see that they're actually drawn to Jesus. They're drawn to the Holy Spirit. They're drawn to this God that they don't think exists or that they think is, is, is just a fairy tale. What they're really attracted to is actually Jesus' spirit living and moving and empowering the people of Hiawatha Church. Or if you're a Christian here today, the reason you love each other so well is not because the people sitting next to you are, are, are brilliant and generous and kind and the best people here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Sorry to burst your bubble. But what you're drawn to in brothers and sisters in Christ, you're drawn to Christ in them. Or to make it real personal, I literally have this conversation with people. I tell them, you wouldn't like Spencer apart from Jesus. You think I'm kind. You think you like being in my home. You think I'm a good friend. But let me tell you, the real Spencer, the Spencer apart from Jesus, the Spencer before I got saved, he's a jerk. I promise you, you would not like him. So you think you like me. You think you like uh, being around me, being my friend, coming into my home. But the reality is the real Spencer, in my sinful nature, I'm a jerk. I'm arrogant. I'm selfish. I'm greedy. I'm mean. I'm a bully. So if there's anything that you like in me, I promise you, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit living within me. It's Jesus within me that makes you feel loved, wanted, comfortable, respected, safe. It's the Holy Spirit using me. That's what you're attracted to. That's what you like. It's not me. And we could say that about all of us as well. So I try and help them see and help Christians see as well that we might say that uh, God is distant from us. We might say, non-Christians might say that they hate God or maybe they just don't believe in God. Yet the reality is they're often attracted to that same God within us. I've literally said this to my friends. You say that Jesus can't be real, but can't you see how strange it is that this diverse group of people is so unified? This group of people that's so different, that would not be friends, that would probably be enemies, apart from the gospel, that they all kind of look the same, that they all kind of treat you with love and compassion and forgiveness and hospitality. And it's not because we're great. It's because our God is great and that God lives within us. This love that you feel, it's not from us. It's from the Jesus that you think is a fairy tale. You don't have to believe this. We're, I'm just trying to share with them, trying to redirect this potential like that they have towards me and say, it's actually not me, it's him. It's actually, Hiawatha is not the greatest group of people here in South Minneapolis. It's just that we have a really great God that loves us and is, in, is empowering us and has saved us. So Hiawatha Church, we need to do this. We need to... Individually and corporately, we need to make this connection in our hearts, in our minds, that Jesus is, is mystically and truly present here in his church, that we are his body. So let us remember and remind each other this again and again and again, that the love that we experience from our Christian parents, from our community group, from our teachers, from our leaders, from the children in this church, the love that we experience from other Christians is a tangible act of love from Jesus Christ himself, from the body of Christ. And let us fight against the lie that Jesus isn't close to us if we don't feel it, 
or that Jesus is, is mad at us or distant from us or disappointed in us because our, our emotions tell us that he's distant or we're not feeling it, while at the same time the body of Christ is caring for us well. That's hard to do. So let's remind each other of that. Let's help each other make that connection and fight together, fight for each other, that when we feel like Jesus is distant or, or that Jesus doesn't love us or, or, or is not caring for us well, we can help point each other out. Yeah, that's hard. And I'm sure that's what you're feeling and real right now. But let me tell you, me just like listening to you is, is, is an expression of Jesus' love. He's here listening to you as well. He loves you. He cares for you, etc. So we need each other to remind each other of this. Last thing that we're going to look at here, uh, we looked at Paul's actual salvation, his actual conversion. Now we're going to look at what Paul is doing here. So what's kind of unique here, unlike some of the other speeches or sermons that Paul gives, is that here he's telling his story. Here he's giving his testimony, right? He's, he's witnessing of what, uh, I mean, even like in a courtroom or like before rulers, like he's witnessing to what he's seen and heard, what he has experienced. So as we look at Paul's testimony, let's think about uh, how he's doing it. And let this... Uh, this is kind of going to be a good example for us. And we're going to see later, uh, or th throughout the book of Acts, Paul speaks in different ways depending on his audience. But here, he's sharing his story. He's sharing his conversion. And we, uh, maybe you've heard that word before. You've heard that Christians uh, share their testimonies. You've heard that Christians witness to others. And it might seem kind of weird, kind of strange Christianese or just like religious type language. But what's going on here, both with Paul and what we do as a church, whether it's on a Sunday morning or in our community groups or at some of our men's or women's events, when people are sharing their testimony and, and, and witnessing to what they've seen and heard, those are like legal terms, right? Think of a person in a courtroom who's giving the testimony of what's happened to them or, or witnessing what they have seen and heard and experienced. So as we look at Paul, how he gives his testimony to a group of people, both let's, let's be encouraged by this as well as see this as an example for us, things that we should have when we share our testimonies. And to be clear here, we're not saying that you should never tell a part of your story, a part of your past, and not link it to your salvation or to your conversion. We're not saying that. But when we do share our testimonies, this is a great example for us of what needs to be in there, what a, what a true Christian testimony is. So let's look at Paul's here. So the first thing that we see in Paul is that he knows his assignment. He knows his identity. So like we've said before in our passage here today, we're reminded, Paul, Paul reminds uh, the people that are listening, he knows his identity. He knows what he's supposed to do. He knows as a Christian, he's called to witness. He's called to tell what has happened to him. Not because he's brilliant or not because he figured it out. Not because he's the, the best Jewish uh, adherent to the Jewish faith, but rather because it happened to him, and he's just sharing what's happened. So in today's passage, we read, speaking of Paul, for you will be a witness for him, for Jesus, to every one of what you have seen and heard. And in Acts 9, when we actually read uh, Paul's uh, conversion account in the book of Acts, it's even more clear. But the Lord said to Paul, go. Actually, no, this is to Ananias. Go, for Jesus has chosen Paul. Uh, so Ananias is hearing from the Lord. So, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings 
and the children of Israel. So Paul, as well as us, we, we, we know that part of our identity as uh, one who gives their testimony, a sent one, a called one who is supposed to share what has happened to us, this great news, this great gospel that we have been a part of. Second thing that we see here with Paul is that he knew his audience, right? We see Paul speak to many different groups of people throughout the book of Acts, and here he knows his audience. It's a group of Jewish people, a group of people that follow the Jewish faith, uh, a people that he addresses as fathers and brothers. Probably many of them knew Paul personally, or at least knew who he was before his conversion. And so what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to persuade a group of people. He knows what this group of people values. He knows their history. And so he's, uh, a lot of what he's doing here, and we could literally go phrase by phrase in his testimony here and unpack why that's persuasive, why that's important for a, a Jewish audience to hear. And you can do that in your community groups this week as you study this passage. But what he's trying to do is persuade them, trying to show that, hey, guys, I'm not a fool. Guys, I, I actually know the Jewish faith really, really well. I wasn't just apathetic. I was the most zealous person for protecting the Jewish faith, for protecting the law. He says, guys, look in my eyes. You remember me. I'm the guy that worked with our leaders to, to figure out a plan to destroy this movement. Remember me? I was laughing and joking as people were murdering Christians. Remember me? I asked that you'd give me soldiers so I could go city to city to collect Christians and throw them in jail. And this is what happened. The real resurrected Jesus showed up. He told me he was real. He told me that he was the Messiah, the, the, the king, the, the rescuing king that we have been waiting for as a Jewish people for centuries and centuries and centuries. So what Paul is doing here, he knows his audience. He's speaking to this angry mob of Jewish people, telling them his story in order to demonstrate to them both his personal faithfulness to his Jewish heritage, as well as that this Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. I didn't believe it either, guys. I didn't believe it either. I hated them, but it's true. If anyone, if anyone's changed life should be persuasive to you, brothers and fathers of the Jewish faith, it should be mine. This Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the point of our holy Hebrew scriptures, of everything we hold dear. He's the Messiah that we've been waiting for and longing for and praying for for centuries and centuries and centuries. We even see in one of Paul's letters in the book of, of Romans, I believe it's uh, Romans 15, Paul, when, when writing to uh, the, the, the church in Rome, he just lists off verse after verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, that says that Jesus that the Messiah was going to come not just to the Jewish people, but to come for Gentiles also. That, that God's plan of salvation was not just for his covenant people, Israel, but that it was for all tongues and tribes and nations, all ethnicities and races and nationalities and genders. It was for everyone. And Paul, in, in Romans 15, he argues, guys, look in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. This was God's plan of salvation. But this was unpopular with this mob of Jews. And even though Paul tries to persuade them, they do not believe. And it's not just Paul who is used by the Spirit to spread the gospel. Like Paul, we too are called to share our testimonies. So just like Paul was called to share the gospel, we too 
are called to do it as well, to give the testimony what's happened in our lives, to be witnesses of the goodness of God through the gospel, to share what we have seen and heard. Here Paul is giving his testimony before rulers and crowds, kind of like in a courtroom setting. He's not sharing his opinions to them. He's not performing a piece of art, but rather he's presenting a detailed account of what really happened. Your Honor, this is what happened. This is my testimony. I'm a witness to this great experience and God showing up and proving that Jesus really is the risen Messiah. He really is God in flesh, like he said he was. Paul is a witness of the risen, ruling Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King, the powerful and fulfillment of all the Old Testament, of all the Hebrew Scriptures that these people have valued and have loved for their whole life. So what can we learn here from Paul when we share our testimonies, when we give witness? What should Christians be doing and thinking and saying as they share their stories, as they declare their testimonies of how God uh, has saved them? Five things we're going to look at. So just very practical. When we share testimonies, these things should be considered. This is what a Christian testimony looks like. First thing is, we see Paul do this. We make Jesus the hero, not us. Notice in Paul's story, he, he, he makes Jesus the hero. Even though Paul's like one of the greatest Christian heroes in the New Testament, all that God used him to do. In Paul's testimony, in Paul's story, he makes Jesus the hero. And when we share our testimonies, we should do the same. It is not look at Spencer in his past and where he's at now and be impressed. It's Jesus should be impressed. We should be impressed with Jesus. He is the hero of our story. Paul told the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it. He just shared how evil he used to be and how the gospel transformed him. We don't need to look any better or any worse. We're now uh, secure and confident uh, in the gospel so that we actually can share our past. We can share the, the, the dirtiness, the evil, what we've done. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We can be hashtag authentic, right? We can be real. It's okay for us to look broken and bad. We can share the truth just like Paul did, which makes the gospel even more beautiful. It makes Jesus even more the hero. We want the gospel to be the solution, not just working harder, not just motivation, not just grit. In the gospel, we're free to be honest and real as we share of how Jesus rescued us from ourselves and from sin and from death. The third thing we see in, in Paul and him sharing his testimony is we also share who we are now. Right? We share how the gospel was not just good news for me in my conversion, but it's good news for me now how it's saving me now, how it's transforming me now, how it's empowering me now. Paul shares of his life, how it was and how it's different now. He is clear about him being called by God, just like us, to be a witness of all that we've seen and heard. And like Paul, we don't end our testimonies by saying we're the hero. It's not, I sucked, Jesus is the hero, now I'm the hero. You should like me. But rather, Jesus is still the hero. We share about how Jesus still is needed in our own life, how the gospel is still good, good news, and the, the solution to every problem I still have now. And that it, it is through his spirit, my, my need, our need, and his spirit to continue to transform us 
and this life that we're living. The fourth thing we see is that we need to be prepared to share. So this is just kind of speculation. This doesn't say it in Acts. But I don't think Paul stirred up a crowd, tried to get hundreds of Jewish people to murder him just so he could have an opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe he did, but he probably didn't try to get murdered. But rather, he was acutely listening to the Holy Spirit. And as this group of people, probably hundreds of people, try to murder him, he realizes, he listens to the Spirit, that, hey, this is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And just like that, we are also called to, be, to always be prepared to share. Most of us, our job is not to go out and share the gospel between 9 and 5. Maybe a few of us in this room, that we are doing full-time ministry and evangelism. But most of us, it just comes out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's people uh, asking us over our lunch break or as we're outside or as we're taking a walk or as we're at a funeral or something like that. And as Christians, we're called to be prepared. In the New Testament, the church is called to always be prepared, to give an answer to anyone who asks you, why do you have this hope? To give the reason, why, why, why do you have this hope in you? Why are you not devastated with how the way, the way our country and our world is going right now? How are you not hopeless because you're going through such horrible financial or, or uh, health trials right now? Why do you give so much of your time and your energy and your resources to a church? It seems like such a waste of time. Why are you so joyful even though you're going through depression and loss? Christians are called to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, why do we have hope? And to do so with gentleness and respect. Paul did that, right? He could have yelled at this crowd behind this now group of soldiers that's protecting him and say, you fools! I am innocent! And now you're going to hell because you're turning from God. He could have done something like that, but he chooses to, to, to love these people, to even see himself in this murderous crowd, to know he was there just a few years earlier. Something that's kind of crazy about the culture we live in right now is that we live in this postmodern world. So in general, in the West, we highly value story. We highly value a person's experience, right? So phrases like, well, that's your truth, or I need to share my truth, right? We, we highly value people's stories. And, and by saying someone's truth, someone's story, someone's experience is not real, that's one of like the big cultural sins we have right now. We don't have many cultural sins in the West or here in America, but that's one of them. For someone to say, I experienced this. This was real for me. This was my story. To say, well, that's not true. You're stupid for believing that. Like, almost everyone says, oh, we should not do that. So they might not believe us when we tell our story. They, they, they might not receive the truth that, that is a part of our testimony. They might even think, hey, that person's foolish or gullible. But most of the time, living in this postmodern culture, people will let you tell them their story, right? They will let you tell them your truth, if we want to use those type of languages. So as, you know, 1 Peter 3 reminds us, as Acts 22 shows us, as Christians, let us be even more uh, bold and encouraged to share our stories, to share our testimonies here in this culture that values it, that values diversity, that values different opinions and plurality of religion and experience. Not to say that they're going to believe it. They, they probably won't believe it, but we're given a unique opportunity living in 2019 here in this city to be able to share our stories. So let's use that.
And then finally, what we see is that, I'm going to kind of do a spoiler alert. Uh, I'm going to steal a, uh, the first verse from Chris's passage next week. Guess what? This mob doesn't believe Paul. They're not converted. They hear his truth, but then the next line, the next verse we didn't read today, they say, let's still murder him. Let's still kill him. He needs to be executed. So the last thing we need to see in Paul's testimony here is that it's not always effective. Okay, let, let, let that give us some hope, right? If the guy that was filled with the Spirit to, to, to plant and start dozens and dozens and dozens of churches, the guy that was used by the Spirit to write half the New Testament, if his story of miraculous conversion of Jesus literally knocking him on his butt, visually, audibly, tangibly saying to Paul, you are mine, this is what you're going to do, if that story can't convince people, then ours might not either. So I don't want that to be a downer, but rather just a, this is just the reality, okay? If people didn't believe Paul, they probably also won't always believe us. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to share our stories. It just means that we can be uh, prepared that not everyone is going to receive it. And maybe they will. Maybe they won't receive it today, but years down the road, they will. Or when they experience some trauma in their life, or when they need hope, or when they need friendship, they will remember your story and, and come back to it. So let us be encouraged that God is the one that saves. It's not our great stories. It's not our great incredible lives or incredible deeds. It's not our great persuasion or our great knowledge of the Scripture. Well, we still, like First Peter said, we should be prepared. Let us rest in the fact that we're just called to testify. We're just called to give testimony, to be witnesses to what God has done in our lives. And it's God is the one who saves. God's the one that removes the veil. God is the one that opens the eyes of our hearts. God is the one that breathes life into spiritually dead people. God is the one that makes enemies into friends. It's not us. So let's rest in the power, the saving power of Jesus Christ and the powerful works the Holy Spirit does. And at the same time, do what, what, what Paul is doing here, knowing that it is a gift. Our salvation is a gift. We can't earn it. Even witnessing and sharing our faith is a gift. So let us be encouraged in that today. The Spirit is the one who softens hearts, who opens blind eyes. He's done that for us in this room if you are a Christian here today. The Spirit is the one who makes enemies into friends and the one who turns violent, self-righteous, murderous people into church planters and global missionaries. May God continue to use his body, the church, both here at Hiawatha and across this globe to do this more and more for our joy for his glory, and for the salvation of the lost. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good, good news that played out in story. God, that you love us to death and back. God, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would use us in great and powerful ways to be witnesses, to testify to the gospel, that we would uh, love each other deeply as uh, the body of Christ. God, thank you for this great news that we see, saw declared and demonstrated here in Acts 22. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church, as we go into a, a time of worship,